who's ready for another Q&A edition where we'll be talking about highly compensated employees and 401k plans, how interest rates affect Social Security, and taking distributions from inherited 401k accounts in this, the 63rd episode of the Retirement Planning Education Podcast. Welcome to the Retirement Planning Education Podcast, where you can learn all about IRAs and Roth IRAs, employer retirement plans, taxes, Social Security, Medicare, portfolio withdrawal strategies, annuities, estate planning, and much more. And now here's your host, Andy Panko. Okay, welcome back, everybody. Thank you as always for listening. So here we are, 63rd episode. I, this is the first one after the uh, last one, which was the end of the six-part series of Intro to Investing. For those of you who did not catch that, definitely go back and listen through. I am super proud of it. Put a lot of work into it. It was a uh, labor of love, for lack of a better term. Kind of glad it's over. It was. Um, it, it definitely took some effort. You know, more so than like these Q and A's, for example. I just get some questions. Sometimes I have to look up some stuff. Sometimes I don't, but otherwise it's pretty straightforward. So anyway, uh, you know, intro to investing that that was fun. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you got a lot out of it. Now I'm back uh, doing a Q and A edition. I did have a handful of questions batched up from the last couple of months, where I basically neglected them because the uh, the last few months were focused on. Uh, you know, the intro to investing plus i did uh first one of the year i think was about the secure 2.0 uh changes that kind of came up last minute at the end of 2022 so without further ado i'm going to get into today's questions hopefully it should be a lot shorter than the last ones where i was well over an hour in some of them these should be pretty pretty succinct so i know what you're saying stop talking just get to it monkey so here we go uh now honestly these are these are some difficult questions uh, i'm so i i don't fully know the answer to all of them, partly because some of them aren't exactly my wheelhouse. And I'll start with this first one, which is not my wheelhouse. And the last one isn't really specific to retirement planning. It's more so a general question about someone career changing, wanting to get into the industry of retirement and tax focused planning and kind of what some steps or recommendations may be. So I thought that's kind of a cool one, you know, not going to apply to a lot of you, but those of you who, who, who were sort of curious what all goes into potentially switching careers or starting this or whatever, whether or not you're interested for yourself or, you know, just curiosity sake interested, you might, you might find my, my thoughts on that somewhat uh, enlightening and uh, amusing or entertaining. I don't know. So anyways, first question is from Eric. And this is one where I, I know enough to know. I don't know enough. If you know what I'm saying, you probably don't. That <laughs> doesn't make sense. But uh, the question is, would you please discuss the impact of being declared a highly compensated employee on the prior year's 401k contributions, pre-tax, uh, Roth, etc.? Thank you, Eric. So first, 401k, I assume you, you probably all know what it is. But just in case you don't, it is a qualified, you know, special tax qualified retirement account specific to working for a private employer. By private, I mean non-governmental. So if you work for a government employer, you're going to have probably the, the federal thrift savings plan or a 403b plan or a 457. If you work for a private employer, uh, it, it's it's almost certainly going to be a 401k plan that they have. Now, that number is just simply the reference in the Internal Revenue Code, the tax code that establishes and, and governs such plan. It's section 401k of the tax code. So, you know, now it's just sort of known as a 401k plan. So in a nutshell, it is uh, loosely similar to an IRA in that you can put money in on a pre-tax basis. The money will grow, tax deferred. Whenever you eventually take money out, you'll then pay tax on it at the time. 401ks can also have a Roth component to it where you can put money in uh, into a Roth sort of sub-account, you know, Roth account of the 401k where you don't get a tax break for it up front, but like any other Roth style retirement savings vehicle, 
that the money grows tax deferred and eventually all comes out tax free, assuming you meet a few qualifying conditions. But where 401ks and other employment plans are quite different from IRAs is that IRAs stands for the, the I and IRAs individual. It's individual retirement arrangement or agreement. I, I forget. Um, these employer plans are very different, especially 401ks. They're covered by something called ERISA, E-R-I-S-A, which stands for the Employee Retirement Income Security Act of 1974, I believe it is. It is really large sweeping regulation meant to uh, protect retirement savings of employees, of workers. There's lots of rules and restrictions and onerous requirements that the, 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 the retirement plans need to meet, the plan administrators need to meet, the employers who sponsor the plans need to meet just to make sure they're not taken advantage of or, or not acting in the best interest of the plan participants. Um, and the goal of these 401ks is, is to try to foster retirement savings of, of workers in general, not just the fat cats, you know, the, the quote unquote, highly compensated employees or HCEs as they're known within, uh, within technical tax speak. And they want to make these plans uh, ideally utilized by rank and file employees. Again, not just the, the executives or those that, that earn the most. So there's, there's various sorts of, uh, it's called non-discrimination testing to ensure that when a company does start a 401k for its employees, that it's not just, again, you know, the, the highly compensated employees, the executives and the upper management, the, uh, the owners of the firm that are the ones taking advantage of, well, not taking advantage of, but using the plan, I should say. Whereas the, I'll, I'll call it rank and file, um, you know, the non-highly compensated employees aren't using it, or at least aren't using it as much as the, the highly compensated employees. So I won't get into the specifics of the non-discrimination testing that these plans need to do every year, because frankly, I'm not an expert on it. I mean, I, I knew the rules at one point when I was studying for it for the certified financial planner exam, but I, I made it my focus that I didn't want to deal professionally with um, small businesses and business planning because it's a whole separate angle and a whole separate set of twists and turns, especially when you start talking about employee, uh, you know, employer retirement plans. It gets really complicated really quick if you don't specialize in it. And so I decided, nope, not doing it. So, you know, I, I know enough to be dangerous. I know the basics. I also know that this is not my ballywick. So uh, I, I do not attempt to get in the weeds with doing stuff like this. And uh, anyway, so uh, the question I'm kind of saying a lot without saying anything here. Well, first, what is what is a highly compensated employee? You know, what's the formal definition of that? Well, there's, it's sort of multi-pronged. One is if you own more than 5% of the company, you're automatically deemed a highly compensated employee of that company. The other test is, and you don't have to meet both. You can meet just, you know, one or two of these tests. The other test is if you, if you make a certain amount of earnings or wages from that company, and this wage amount changes every year. For 2023, I believe it's $150,000. For 2022, it was $135,000. Uh, yes, as you can tell, these are these are indexed for inflation. Um, so if you meet either one of those conditions, you own more than 5% of the company, or in 2023, let's say, you, you earn or will earn more than 150 grand, or last year, 2022, it was $135,000, you are a highly compensated employee. And, and you may not feel like it, depending on you know, where you live and you know, cost of living, but by, in, by IRS standards, you're a highly compensated employee. There's another test that can come into, uh, into the mix with that, with that wage-based test. If your employer uh, additionally chooses to have some, uh, I forget what it's called, it's like a top something, whatever. If you're in, also in the top 20% of all earners within the company, that's another condition that can um, you know, pull you into being a highly compensated employee. So, so what does this mean? So you're a highly compensated employee. Um, remember I said there's non-discrimination testing collectively highly compensated employees can't contribute, um, disproportionately more 
to the 401k plan compared to the non-highly compensated employees. If they do, then the plan is required to retroactively uh, do, I, I think, one of two things. The plan itself, your know, employer, can kick in more money on behalf of the non-highly compensated employees so, so they get more savings in there. Plan doesn't ideally like that because it, you know, it costs the company money. So uh, ideally, I would assume they, they, the companies would typically try to not do that. The other alternative is they need to force the highly compensated employees to take some money out, you know, ba basically undo some of the contributions that they made. Uh, I don't know if it's in the current year, or if this is always going to be in the prior year. Again, frankly, not my expertise. I guess it all depends on when the non-discrimination testing is done, what point in the year, but, but I could be wrong. But lo and behold, you know, the, the, the takeaway is if you are a highly compensated employee, you contributed to your 401k and the company does this non-discrimination testing and realizes, oh man, the non-highly compensated employees did not contribute enough relative to the highly compensated employees. Highly compensated employees most likely are going to have to take some of their contributions back. Um, it, it's that simple in a nutshell. Now, the tax implications of that, I again, forget specifics of this. I only dealt with it once or twice. You, you will be told by your 401k plan administrator, hey, you know, we got to send you back. You know, you made whatever, $20,000 in contributions last year you know, elective deferrals to your either pre-tax or Roth account due to this non-discrimination testing and the levels we need to get to to pass this testing, we need to give you back $5,000 of your contribution. So we'll send it back to you. Plus there will be any gains you made on it will get sent back to you or to the extent you had losses in the money from the time you put it in, uh, you don't get those back. You, you put in a five grand, it dropped to four grand, you get $4,000 sent back to you. There are tax implications. You do have to pay tax on any gains you get back that were attributable to the excess contribution that needed to be returned to you. Uh, I don't believe there's any sort of penalty. Like normally if you take money out of a qualified account before age 59 and a half, there's a 10% penalty. I believe, I could be wrong, but I believe in the case of you getting forcibly given back some of your 401k contribution because the company failed to meet its non-discrimination testing, I don't think they penal the IRS penalizes you for having to take out earnings uh, because of this non-discrimination testing, uh, you know, refunding, but you will have to pay tax on any, on any gains you made. So that's really all I know, Eric. Um, there's probably more to it than this, but, um, you know, maybe even run this by your company's plan administrator. They should have some more explanation and uh, insight to give you. you know, they, they probably won't give you any specific tax advice. I'm sure they'll, they'll shirk that off, but um, I think what I said is, is, is accurate or should be at least enough to point you in the right direction of, you know, what questions to ask your employer if you have other questions, or if you do happen to find someone who specializes in dealing with uh, employee retirement plans, you know, he or she should, should be able to definitely uh, answer any other questions that I failed to do because I, not my, not my wheelhouse, like I said. All right. So that was the first question. Thank you, Eric. Next question from Mr. Dave Fultz, one of the other moderators who so selflessly spend so much time helping to uh, moderate the Facebook group, Retirement Planning Education, formerly known as Taxes and Retirement. Thank you, Mr. Fultz. His question was, uh, people say when interest rates go up, it is less advantageous to delay Social Security. Would you opine how recent interest rate changes have not altered the benefit of delaying and explain the difference between real interest rates after inflation is calculated and the current interest rate environment? Thank you very kindly, comma, good sir, exclamation point. As always, thank you, Mr. Fultz, for your support and your, uh, your feeding me of questions uh, for, 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 these, for these things. So, 
interest rates have risen over the last year. Uh, you know, at the at the depths of the pandemic, interest rates were gener his, uh, generationally historically low. I think you know lo lowest many rates have been in the history of uh, recorded interest rates, to my knowledge, at least in the U.S. Coming off that, the, you know, the depths of the pandemic, uh, as the economy started to heat up, inflation started to rise. Federal Reserve had no choice but to start jacking up interest rates, and interest rates have shot up a lot. Uh, since the beginning of 2021, uh, beginning of 2022 was 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 really large increases in interest rates. Uh, there's various types of interest rates. Maybe one day I'll do an episode just about interest rates and what that means. There's 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 hundreds of different interest rates that have different implications and apply to different things. So it's kind of not accurate just to simply say interest rates gone up or gone down. But anyway, so uh, I'm, I'm going to make that inaccurate statement and say rates have gone up. Um, the default's question is: Does that impact? your social security benefit, yes or no? The simple answer is no. Inflation does, and I'll, and I'll talk about that in a moment, but the, the market level of interest rates, whether it's the federal funds rate, which is the rate that the Federal Reserve actually directly changes, whether it's the rate on the you know 10-year US Treasury note, for example, uh, whether it's the rate, you know the prime rate, which is a rate that a lot of uh, consumer loans are benchmarked off of, whether it's uh, the rate on your savings account, whatever, doesn't matter what those are. They do not impact the formula of what your social security benefit's going to be. I believe I've talked about this in different episodes, definitely hit on in YouTube videos and discussed in the Facebook group, but your social security benefit is a function of your, your historical wages uh, and inflation every year dur during your working years. And this sort of behind the scenes formula that uh, has what's called bend points with these different values. And a lot of them are inflation impacted, but the, the market level of interest rates doesn't directly impact any of that stuff. So long and short of it is, regardless how low or how high the interest rate environment is, it does not directly impact what your social security benefit projection and estimation and ultimate benefit will be whenever you do start benefits. But inflation definitely, uh, definitely impacts it. And it does it in a few ways. So for those who are, this gets technical. I, I think I did a, uh, I'll, I'll link to a YouTube video I did. This will this will have it make more sense. It's a really complicated formula how to figure out social security, but there's multiple parts of it that have an inflation component to it. So if you are um, prior to the year you turn 62, there's there's various different inflation components that go into the the calculation of your benefit. One is the inflation of national average wage index. And long story short, what, what that does is it looks at all of your prior years of earnings prior to the year you turn 60, and inflation adjusts them up to the year you turn 60. That then is the uh, you know the, the list, the roster of earnings, that, that inflation-adjusted roster of earnings that gets fed into your Social Security benefit calculation. And I mentioned there's these things called bend points. I don't want to get into it now. The, the video will definitely uh, be able to make more sense of it than I can stuttering through it here verbally um you know your benefits it comes up with a with an average monthly wage amount and that's run through these bend points where a certain percentage of that average monthly amount you get you get x percent of it applied and then the next chunk of it gets y percent applied and, and that all folds into determining what your ultimate social security benefit is so inflation definitely impacts it for those of you who are at least 62 or older and or whether or not you started your benefit or you're still delaying then how inflation comes into play is the something called the CPI, Consumer Price Index, specifically CPI-W, I believe it is. Um, that, that directly impacts your benefit, whatever your benefit calculation is. So your benefit calculation is kind of written in stone uh, the year you turn 62. To the extent you're still working 
and getting really high wages, it, it can still potentially uh, increase beyond that. But otherwise, your benefits kind of it, it's done. It's never going to be lower than that. Um, and, you know, and it won't change again, other than additional earnings. The other thing that can change it is inflation, as measured by the CPI-W. So that can and will, uh, to the extent there's any you know non-zero positive inflation, that will increase your benefits. Again, whether you're actually getting your benefit or you're delaying the start of your benefit, if you're 62 or older, CPIW does increase your benefits. So inflation increases your benefits, yes. Interest rates themselves do not directly impact your benefit. But you want to get a little more, um, uh, what's the right word here? Uh, uh, you, want, you want to wax a little more philosophical. I don't even know what I'm saying. But there's this unrelated... Um, there is sort of a link between interest rates and and inflation. So, um, you know, to some extent, interest rates are a byproduct of inflation, such as now, for example. Inflation has been really high through 2022. It's coming down. It's trending back down more towards, you know, its uh, its current rate is, is is trending more towards historical average of, you know, two and a half, three percent. But through through large part of 2022 is quite high, you know, eight or nine percent or so. Um because of that high inflation, interest rates have been forced to rise. Uh, so anyway, so there is to some extent a uh, you know kind of a relationship between interest rates and inflation. But bringing it back to this ultimate question, interest rates themselves do not directly impact Social Security benefits, but inflation definitely does. Man, that was a choppy long answer for something that should have been thirty seconds. My fault. But good question, Dave Fault. Thank you for that. All right, next. Uh, doesn't appear to be a name here, so I will leave it. Oh, uh, well, yeah, no. Okay. So question is, hey, Andy, love your podcast. Thank you. I hear you. Uh, my question is about an inherited 401k that I received in 2006. And the person it was from had not reached the age yet to start pulling from that account. So I'll, I'll assume that means the person was not yet 70 and a half because at the time, 70 and a half was the required minimum distribution beginning age. You know, the year you turned 70 and a half, you needed to start taking money out of, of, uh, qualified tax deferred accounts like 401ks and IRAs. Um, so the question goes on. So I'll assume that's what the person means. It wasn't entirely clear, but I'll assume it means the person died in 2006 and was not yet 70 and a half. Uh, it goes on to say, I have to be honest, it was something I forgot about and it was very emotional to think about in the beginning while grieving the person it was from since it was apparent. I am not at the required age to pull from mine yet. How do I handle this? Uh, thank you in advance. So uh, when, when the person says, I was in, uh, what is it? I'm not of the required age to pull from mine yet. How do I handle this? I'll assume that means you are not your own required minimum distribution age, which in 2006, again, would have been 70 and a half, or now post Secure Act, which went into effect in 2020, is now 72. So um, uh, I, I got bad news here. I, I, I believe, based on what I know in, in this email, that you've been not taking distributions you should have been taking from 2007 onward. Um, so, so you made it clear that you weren't the spouse of this person. If you were the spouse of the one who, who died, you could have potentially been saved here in that um, you could have made the account your own when the person passed and you would not have needed to take distributions between then and now. But you said you are the uh, child of the original account owner who died and you received the account in 2006. I'll assume that means the person passed in 2006. I'm not sure, but let's just pretend that's the case. Um, unfortunately, Based on what I know in this email, I believe you you needed to have started re taking annual required minimum distributions starting 2007, the year after the person died, um, under the old pre-Secure Act 
required minimum distribution rules for inherited accounts that were in place in, at the time, 2006-2007. I'm almost certain, I could be wrong, I, I didn't go back and like forensically recreate what exactly was in place at the time, but I believe this to have been the legislation that, that was uh, effective then. As the child of the deceased account owner, you needed to start required minimum distributions in 2007 based on your life expectancy at the time and you needed to have taken required minimum distributions every year thereafter, all the way up through now and until you pass or until the account is, is fully depleted during your lifetime. Um, so when you say, how do I handle that? That's uh, what you need to do. Not only do you need to start taking required minimum distributions, but retroactively, you've missed, uh, what, how many years is this? 2007 to 2022, 10, 12, uh, 15 years, which, um, not good, but the they're good, and there's a fifty percent five zero percent penalty on required minimum distributions you're supposed to take, but didn't. And technically, that penalty will apply. So not only are you supposed to now retroactively take an RMD for every one of those years for the last fifteen years or whatever it was, there's also a fifty percent penalty that needs to be taken on those. However, the IRS is fairly lenient for people who miss RMDs on the grounds that I really didn't know I had to or what the calculation was or whatever. And it sounds like you fall into that category. So there's a process by which you can write a letter to the IRS in effect saying, oops, sorry, I just realized now I need to take RMDs and didn't. I realize I need to take them all now, but I also realize there should be a penalty. I'm asking for your leniency and please waiving that because I didn't know. Now, going forward, there's no excuse. You know, you get this one get out of jail free card with a waive the penalty. Going forward, you need to still take these annual RMDs. And uh, if you miss them, there, there should be a penalty that, that you really can't get waived because at this point, you, you know, you, you know uh, better, basically. So um, with that said, uh, I'm trying to think the best way to do this. Find a, a tax preparer who, uh, if, you, if you already don't have one, find someone who's familiar with retirement plan distribution rules and run by him or her, hey, I got this inherited 401k from 2006 or seven. I believe, I just found out now I needed to, to take RMDs from it every year since and I didn't. Help me figure this out. You know, what do I do? Uh, help me calculate the RMD. Help me do, you, you will need to file this form. It's form 5329, I think it is, along with the um, this letter uh, you know, explaining, oops, sorry, I, I missed this penalty. I missed the RMDs. Can you please waive the penalty? You'll, you'll probably want help with this. And it is something you can try to do yourself, but uh, frankly, I, I wouldn't uh, mess around at this stage. I would find someone who can help you with this. So ask around, find someone, you know, tax specialist, tax return preparer who is comfortable and confident in addressing missed RMDs in terms of not only how to take them, but how to help you figure out the, uh, the uh, penalty waiver request process. Um, thank you for the question. Sorry for the um, not not good news here. <clears throat> okay. Uh, two more questions. This one, another one I'm not really an expert on. This is about trusts. Long question. Let me see if I can, you know, multiple paragraphs. Let me just see if I can uh, cut to the chase here. Question is from Will. Uh, it starts, there's, a, there's some intro here, but anyway, specifically, uh, is only the income... Wait, I have a question regarding trust taxation. I imagine it might make a good podcast. Blah, 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 blah. Okay, the question is, is only the income generated from assets within an irrevocable trust taxed at the higher trust tax rates or are assets that are transferred to an irrevocable trust also taxed at the higher tax rates if those assets stay within the trust? So let me pause there before I go on with the rest of it. Uh, a trust. Um, 
I'm trying to see and trying to think how to not make this a uh, full on trust dissertation, but a trust is a legal entity. You can put things in. It is legally distinct and separate from you. As far as how it's taxed, that depends. If it's a revocable trust, meaning you have the ability to revoke or cancel the trust, you know, anything you put into the trust, you can take out. That's a revocable trust. Anything in that trust is taxed as if it's you. It all passes through to you and your own personal tax return, your tax rates, et cetera. An irrevocable trust is a, is a trust that cannot be revoked. You cannot change it. Once you put stuff in, you cannot get stuff out. Now, there's some exceptions. I won't get into them here. But generally speaking, assume irrevocable means once assets go in, they're no longer yours. You don't own the rights to them. You can't get them back, et cetera. Uh, because of that, the trust itself is the one who pays tax on it. They are not your assets. You don't pay tax on it. They don't show up on your tax return. The trust pays tax on them. The trust has to file a tax return going forward to the extent it has taxable income. Why is that potentially a problem? And, and this person here, uh, Will, is mentioning the, the higher tax rates for trusts. Well, because trusts aren't living, breathing people, they, they, are, they are legal, you know, non-living entities, they fall under a different set of tax brackets than individuals do. You know, I'm sure you're all loosely familiar with tax brackets where you know, there's a 10%, there's a 12%, et cetera, et cetera, all the way up to 37%. For individuals, 37% tax rate goes up to hundreds of thousands of dollars of income. For trusts, very different story. Uh, I'm just looking at my chart here. For 2023, where are we? Um, the first $2,900 of a trust income is taxed at 10% versus for individuals, it's like 40,000 or uh, depending on who you're single or whatever. No, it's like, it's like tens of thousands of dollars. Uh, if you're, if you're a person, if you're a trust, it's 2,900. Beyond that, it goes right to 24%. If, if a trust has 2,900 to $10,550 in 2023, 24% tax and then 35. And, and ultimately if a trust has more than $14,450 in 2023 of income, all income beyond that is 37% tax. So that's really punitive. Whereas an individual can have a few hundred thousand dollars of taxable income before the 37% rate applies. A trust can only have like $14,500 before the maximum trust tax rate applies. So trucks, trusts are not tax efficient vehicles. Uh, to the extent you can control it, it's not ideal to have a lot of uh, income flowing through or reported to a, a trust at the trust tax rates because it's quite punitive. So anyways, uh, that's that's sort of the, the nexus of the question. Uh, if a trust, an irrevocable trust, is the is the entity paying tax on something? Is it only paying tax on the income generated from the assets within it? Or does it pay tax on the assets itself? So there's an example now in this question. Take as an example someone with a revocable living trust who passes away in July with $100,000 in stocks. Following his passing, the assets are journaled, meaning transferred, to a newly established irrevocable trust. From July to December, that $100,000 of stocks earns $1,000 in dividends or interest, and no distributions were taken from the trust that year. Would the tax rate only apply to the $1,000 in earnings, i.e. income, or also the $100,000 as well? And if it only applied to the $1,000, if one distributed that $1,000 to the individual beneficiary prior to December 31st of that year, then I assume there would be no tax due on the part of the trust, but instead the beneficiary would be responsible for the tax due on the $1,000, which would be reflected on a K-1. Uh, goes on, in other words, is only the income generated in the principal, not the principal itself, from the inherited proceeds within the trust tax at the trust tax rates if it is not distributed by year end. And if that is the case, uh, no harm on leaving the $100,000 principal in the trust if so desired. Is my understanding correct? Will. Um, I, I, I don't know, Will. Uh, just like I, I intentionally don't get involved in business taxation, business planning, 
business retirement saving plans like 401k because I know it's area specialization I don't have. I similarly try to not get involved in trust taxation matters because that's another sort of niche focused specialized area of the tax world. Uh, I, I do tax returns, but I don't do tax returns for, for trusts. Um, maybe basic simple ones, but generally speaking, I, well, I haven't yet, at least I should say. My plan is to try to not to because, again, there's I'm sure there's more that I don't know about and uh, you know could be dangerous if I don't know what I don't know. Um, but anyway, to answer your question, if you transfer in $100,000, whether it's from a person or from a revocable trust into an irrevocable trust, no, the, the transfer in of assets itself isn't isn't a taxable event to the irrevocable trust. I'm, I'm fairly confident saying that. I mean, again, I could be wrong, but I don't think it is. It's basically just a gift to the trust if you want to view it that way. Any income generated on that $100,000, sure, that, that's income to the trust. Now, here's where I don't know. Um, I guess it depends how the trust is structured. If, if it's intended to be a uh, see-through or conduit trust, where everything in the trust is there solely for underlying beneficiaries and is required to be passed out to the underlying beneficiaries, then I think functionally and in form, uh, that income would be taxable to the heirs, to the beneficiaries, not the trust itself. But again, I don't know. I'm not a, a legal or tax trust expert. Um, but what you're saying sounds like it could, could be right, uh, Will. If the income stays within the trust, it is not distributed. So, you know, it's not like a conduit or see-through and the trust is designed to be this, uh, you know, forever living thing of its own where the, the income isn't passed out, uh, at least not not every year, then I do believe, yes, that $1,000 would be taxed at the trust tax rates, um, whereas, you know, not the beneficiaries. But either way, the $100,000 of principal is transferred in. I, I'm fairly confident that that's not taxed at all to the trust. It's only any income generated from it, like dividends or interest, if not passed through, and even um, if things are sold. So if the trust inherits these assets or you know gets these assets at $100,000 at the time, they increase in value to $110,000, the trust then sells them all, the trust will then have $10,000 of capital gains on, on which it has to pay tax, unless again, it's passed through to beneficiaries under the terms of being a uh, conduit or see-through trust. So that's all I'm really comfortable in saying on that. And I'm, I'm frankly not even certain that what I said is right here, but I, I think what I just mentioned is uh, accurate to, to my knowledge, but again, no, um, no, no guarantees. Sorry about that, Will, not a great answer, but I answered to the best of my abilities and knowledge on that one. And finally, this one's interesting. So um, long, long email, and it does actually have one question that is relevant to, to you know, retirement planning education. The next one's more about like getting into the industry. So, so let me start with a question about, uh, you know, the typical sort of question. Um, and I f unfortunately just saw this after I finished recording my series on the, um, you know, intro to investing. Otherwise I would have included it then. So, so sorry about this, uh, person asked to not be named. Sorry for not catching this sooner and including it in that. But the question is about target date, retirement fund, target date, mutual funds, target date, retirement funds, what are the pros and cons? Uh, he, uh, I believe it's a he, actually, I don't know. Uh, this person goes on to say, I understand the benefits of investing in low cost index funds, such as mutual funds or ETFs. I've done some research and here are the reasons I like target date index funds. So first, what are target date funds? It's basically a fund, uh, like a pooled investment vehicle. If you, if you recall back to that mutual fund and ETF episode I did a handful of episodes ago in my intro to investing, you, a bunch of people pull up money into a big pot. That pot goes out and buys a bunch of underlying securities, stocks, bonds, whatever. 
target date retirement fund is the allocation of stocks versus bonds in this fund is based on a certain year. You can say, I wanna retire in 2050, which is what, that's uh, 27 years from now. That's relatively far out. And so anyone investing in that 2050 target date retirement fund will have a fairly aggressive allocation of stocks. I, each, each fund maker can be slightly different, but I'm gonna say it's probably 27 years out. I don't know, 90% stocks is my guess, You know, if not even higher. Um, and then what happens is as 2050 approaches, it assumes your your target retirement is, is getting closer, therefore you're getting older. And it, the, the fund will automatically start dialing down the equity allocation and put more towards bonds. So whereas now it might be 90% stocks, 10% bonds, fast forward 10 years, we're now only 17 years out from, uh, did I do that right? From 2050. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah, 2000, yeah. 17, 17 years out from 2050, it'll assume, okay, you're getting older. We want to start dialing down the risk. So maybe it drops then to you know 80% stocks, 20% bonds. Fast forward another 10 years, you're only seven years out from that 2050 target retirement year. The fund will start stepping down again, or you know, if it hadn't already, to I'm just making this up. Maybe by then it'll be 65% stocks, 35% bonds. So, so that's what a target date retirement fund is. You, you pick the year that you plan on retiring, and the fund does the rest in terms of figuring out the allocations. On I'm gonna say I've done some research, and here are the reasons I like target date index funds. They're well diversified. Target date funds from major brokerage firms like Schwab or Vanguard contain total stock index funds and total bond index funds. Simplicity. I like the fact that, th that I only purchase one fund instead of buying several index funds. Auto rebalancing. I think it's good that it auto rebalances annually since I may forget to rebalance the portfolio myself and it takes the emotion out of it when rebalancing. And finally, the portfolio mix of stocks and bonds automatically readjusts as we are approaching the retirement year of the fund. What are your thoughts? So this person is 100% right. These are all of the pros and the reasons why someone would consider using a target date fund. Now, it doesn't need to be Schwab or Vanguard. This person did reference those. This is not a solicitation or recommendation that, uh, that you should or shouldn't use them. They're just you know two of the providers that, that uh, make and, and uh, sell such funds. All these things are accurate. These target date retirement funds generally do uh, invest in a collection of other index funds. So if you believe in a passive long-term you know, control your fees, control your simplicity, control your diversity, uh, index fund investor, target date funds, ultimately invest in those. Like if you're in a, a target date fund that has an 80-20 allocation of stocks to bonds, the 80% stocks is probably going to be spread across, you know, three or four different stock index funds, a total US, a total international, or, you know, large cap US, a small cap US, uh, whatever. And then, you know, one or two, maybe three bond funds. Um, so yes, they are, they are well diversified. They are very simple. Uh, and again, this is our selling point. Instead of you having to pick which funds to use for your 80% stock allocation, which funds for your 20% bond, you just pick this one fund. It does it all for you. It, it wraps up underneath it um, the, the, the different the different index funds, like I mentioned. Auto rebalancing, that's exactly the other benefit. You know, when you're young and you got 30, 40 years to retirement, you, you probably should be fairly aggressive in your exposures. As you approach retirement, generally speaking, this isn't the case for everyone, but generally speaking, uh, people usually are, are well suited to dial down the aggressiveness and the stock exposure in, in their traditional investments. Investments. So, so these target date funds are designed to do that. They they, they dial down the uh, the risk for you as retirement approaches. Um, so those are all the pros. Uh, everything you said is right. I fully agree with it. So, what are the cons now? Well, the cons, the fee is slightly higher. Now, it's not going to break the bank. It depends on the platform, Vanguard, Schwab, Fidelity. Whereas the underlying index funds themselves usually have fees that are 
give or take a little, you know, so some are a percent and a half, some are seven, uh, but generally 0.05%, give or take a little to buy individual stock funds and bond funds, you know, index funds. When you buy a target date retirement fund, it's, it's now, I haven't checked lately, but I want to say it's like 20, 25, maybe, you know, 0 0.2, 0.25% all in fee, maybe a little less, maybe a little more, but the point is it's higher. Now it's still not grotesquely high. It's not 1%, it's not one and a half percent, but it, it, it's higher. And over the course of decades, maybe it'll add up. And that's the price you pay for convenience and all these pros that you mentioned. Is it worth it? That's up to you. I'm, I'm not saying it is or it isn't, but just be aware you can recreate the portfolio that the target date fund has. You can recreate it on your own by buying the individual, you know, four or five, six index funds that it holds. But to your point, maybe you don't want to, maybe you want the simplicity, in which case, you know, it's worth the additional fee. So anyway, that's one of the cons. Um, another one is when you are in the distribution stage of life, you can't choose whether you're selling stocks or bonds. So you probably heard me talk about sequence of return risk. You know, when stock market's really ugly, you ideally don't want to be selling off any of your stock investments if and when you need cash and distributions from the fund. You want to sell off bonds, assuming bonds are up or not down as much as stock or, you know, sell off some cash or, you know, uh, take out some cash if you have cash in the account. With the target date retirement fund, if you are in a fund that's 60% stocks, 40% bonds, and you need to free up some cash. You can't choose to sell just the bond portion of that fund and leave your stocks. You can only sell the fund and the fund, you know, is selling off 60% uh, of your stocks, 40% of your bonds. So you lose some control and discretion in what security types you sell when all you have to sell is target date retirement fund. That's another con. And another one is uh, the mix, the allocations might not be ideal or perfect for you. You know, if, if, if you want to retire in 2050 and you just pick a 2050 fund, you, you may get automatically stuck in a 90% stock, 10% bond allocation. Some would argue that's too much bond exposure. You know, if you got 20 plus years out to retirement, a very good case could be made that you shouldn't have any bond exposure. You know, you, you, assuming you have the stomach for it, you know, the risk tolerance for it, you have a lot of risk capacity. You have 20 plus years to ride out nastiness in the stock market. So you, you probably should be, be uh, you know, 100%. Well, this is not advice, but uh, a case can be made that being 100% stock is, is, is arguably what's in your best interest. So um, if you can't find a target date fund that is 100% stock, then these may not work. Or even if, uh, let's just say, I mean, you can kind of play around with this. Like if you plan on retiring in 2030, let's say. And that's only seven years out. And that's going to have a not too crazy stock allocation. Let's just assume that's going to be 65, 35 stocks to bonds. If you want a higher risk allocation because your circumstances uh, justify it, or you're, you know, you're, you're a bit more of a risk taker, you can do that. You can just simply, instead of using a 2030 fund, you can invest in the 2040 or 2050 fund. There's no one going to stop you. You know, no one fact checks you and says, hey, when are you actually going to retire? And based on that answer, they're going to limit you to only investing in certain funds. No, you can pick any one of these target dates you want. So in that sense, you can sort of fudge and manipulate to get to whatever allocations you want of stocks to bonds just by picking, you know, further out or closer in funds. But but point is, the fund's going to do what it's going to do. It's going to automatically ratchet down exposures over time, uh, which, which may or may not work for you. If that's okay with you, great. But you still kind of have to stay on top of it to see what the allocations are over time. And if the allocations ever get a bit of skew from what you want them or need them to be throughout the years, it's going to take some monitoring for you to know that and to sort of swap out of it into another one. All right. Uh, wow, it's been 40 minutes already. Dang. Okay. Uh, this last qu good question. This last one, it's really long. I'm just going to kind of uh, paraphrase here. 
you're, you're, you, you've had, uh, was it 20 something years in other industries and look at your notes here. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, 13 years. Okay. So you, you had 13 years of experience, not in financial services, uh, in a position where you're able to retire early. You're, you're uh, interested in getting into doing this retirement and tax planning type stuff. And you want to know kind of what's the way to do it. Uh, how do you get the education? How do you get the experience? What designations should you get, et cetera? How do you even start? Um, great question. There's no single way to do it. A, you have to have a passion for it. B, you have to be good at this stuff. You have to be genuinely interested in it. You have to ultimately be able to learn it, apply it, explain it well. Um, even then, you can be the sharpest cat out there in terms of your technical knowledge about retirement and tax planning. But if you can't find clients, you don't have a business. And I know lots of people who are really good planners in terms of their technical knowledge. I'm sure they do. They would do awesome work with clients. They just struggle to find clients that that's uh, like it or not, you know, like any business, if you don't actually have clients, you don't have a business. So that that's often the biggest challenge. I know it's not what you asked, but I'm just saying, you know, speaking out loud here, that's often the biggest challenge in trying to get into this business is unless you go work for someone else that already has a robust pipeline of clients and work to give you starting on your own could be, could be quite hard simply because it's really tough to find ways to get clients. Um, that, that's where a lot of people struggle. Anyway, so you got you to sort of crack that nut and figure out what, what way you'd be able to get in front of people if you don't already have a you know, uh, way to do that. Um, so how do you even start? Uh, man, I, I would say start with getting the CFP, Certified Financial Planner designation, or at least do the education curriculum. So that requires a few things. You have to have a college degree. Doesn't need to be in finance, but you need to, you need to have a college degree. Um, there's a formal education curriculum that you can do self-paced or in class, you know, in-person classes. There's lots of uh, uh, schools that offer that. There's also going to be an experience requirement. That's one of your questions. Hold that thought for now. That's going to be a little more challenging. But I would start with the education. Um, it's a few thousand bucks to go through one of these education programs. Assuming you do the self-paced, uh, make sure you like it. If you go through that and you find, you know what, I really don't like this material, just stop there. Like, don't don't even further consider this thing because why put yourself through the torture? But if you go through the CFP education curriculum, you're like, oh yeah, this is it. Like, I'm, I'm really digging this, then good, right? Get that education curriculum done out of the way. Um, then eventually you're going to need experience because the CFP requires 6,000 hours of experience or if you do a formal apprenticeship in financial planning, then it's only 4,000 uh, 4, hours, uh, I think these numbers are right, of apprentice. So one of your questions was, uh, how do you get it? You can work for someone else, uh, obviously, um, either through an apprenticeship or actually working for someone else doing financial planning related stuff. But again, you need 6,000 hours, which is, which is a few years. You can do it self-employed. Uh, if you, if you, you have zero experience, you, you, you open up shop tomorrow, you know, you got to go through the regulatory approval, which isn't that hard to do, frankly, but you got to, you know, start yourself a registered investment advisory firm, um, get registered, et cetera. And you can go hang a shingle big, hey, I'm in business. Uh, so long as you actually get some clients and start doing financial planning work for them, that does qualify. Now, eventually, when you do meet your 6,000 hours, you're going to need someone else. It's a technically called a quote unquote qualified attester. The CFP board, the one who, who oversees the CFP designation is going to need someone to attest that, yes, you did these 6,000 hours and that a tester needs to be another CFP or someone who has a CFA, Chartified Financial Analyst, or I think CPAs as well are allowed to be testers. So you kind of have to find someone who knows you, who trusts you, who, who will sign off and say, yes, you know, th this person did their 6,000 hours. 
So definitely doable as a self-employed person. Um, I mean, I, I can talk about this for a long time, but, but that that's sort of it in a nutshell. I, I would say yes, start by going through, uh, if you're really serious about this, start by paying for and going through the CFP education curriculum. If you don't like it, stop. If you do like it, keep going. Uh, otherwise, I mean, there's so much information out there for free online through like, I'm not, not the boast, but, but the stuff I do, um, the podcast, the Facebook group, the YouTube channel, this stuff I can honestly say is, is as good or better as a lot of the CFP and formal curriculum you can go through. When I was uh, a handful of years ago, when I was going through the same journey, I was already in financial services, so slightly different, but you know, I wasn't specifically in retirement or tax planning at the time. When I was wanting to get into this, I soaked up as much as I could from other podcasts and blogs. And there's a lot of good stuff out there that as I was going through the CFP curriculum and the other curriculum for the other designations I have, I actually found that a lot of other podcasts and blogs were better uh, curriculum, were, were as good or better as the stuff I was reading my formal education for this stuff. For example, the Retirement and IRA Show podcast is some of the best education you can get. It's kind of technical, kind of nerdy, but it's that good. It is curriculum level good that you know the, the people who do that podcast should be uh, charging for it. I like to think my stuff is the same. Um, uh, hopefully not too complicated or complex for those who are you know, the average DIYer, you know, average consumer, but also good enough and meaty enough for those in the industry looking to learn the specifics about retirement and, and tax related angles. I like to think mine is like solid, legit educational curriculum level stuff. So where I'm going with this is, uh, yes, it'd be good to have designations like formal designations like the CFP or RICP, which is Retirement Income Certified Professional. They help give you a little bit of street cred when, when people see them behind you, you know, see those, those, uh, uh, letters behind you. But if you're just out for like education and truly learning, man, you can find it all out there for free podcasts, blogs, YouTube channels. There's, there's lots of really, really good stuff out there. So yes, that, that's how you can sort of learn as much as you can. Um, getting into business itself isn't that hard in terms of starting a company, getting registered, finding clients is going to be the difficulty. Uh, once you get some clients, then you can get your 6,000 hours of experience to help meet the CFP requirements. Um, Anyway, so I'm not saying you should or shouldn't do this, but uh, with no formal financial services background, you are going to have a longer road, you know, more hurdles to overcome in terms of just getting people to buy into you and have have trust and faith in you. Not saying it's it's insurmountable, but it will be more of a challenge than someone who already has more of a pedigree, for lack of a better word, you know, in the industry or, or what have you. All right, uh, good question. Hopefully that helped. I'm, I'm happy to sort of chat about that some more if you want to want to reach out to me um, and anyone in general for, so for, for, for future Q and a episodes, feel free to send me an email at Andy at Andy Panko.com. Uh, I'll, I'll take any question I can. I may not know the answer in which case I'll, I'll do my best to answer, or I just may flat out uh, avoid the question <laughs> if it's that bad, if I don't know it that much, but otherwise I, I am uh, feel free to drop questions. I plan on continuing to do these Q and A's once a month or so. Hopefully you all join them. That's that. Uh, as always, if you like this, please definitely take some time to give a positive review, a thumbs up, a like, a click, a five star, whatever, in whatever uh, venue you use to listen to podcasts. It would be greatly, greatly, greatly appreciated. Thank you as always for listening, and I will see you next time. The information discussed in this podcast is only general explanations and education. It is not specific tax, legal, or investment advice. Before considering acting on anything you heard here, first consult with your tax, legal, or investment advisor. Thank you. Thank you.